generations past, people believed in God and the supernatural because they didn't understand the world. Yet, with the invention of microscopes and telescopes, leading to an explosion in scientific knowledge, belief in God became unnecessary. Or so we're told. But our faith in science really at all? Join us to discover if physics and biology, cosmology and evolution are enemies of faith or if they are actually allies. God and Science, a series at Stapleton Church. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Wolf. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad that you guys are here today. Ready for week two of God and Science? Oh, that was a little weak. First, first service was really excited. I don't know. This series is going really well. In fact, because you guys invited your friends, last week we saw our highest Sunday attendance ever, um, other than for Easter's, which, you know, that's, that's pretty good. So thank you guys for inviting your friends. That's you guys. Continue to do so. We're really excited about it. Okay, a couple things in your bulletin I want you to pay attention to. On the very back side of the bulletin, if you flip it over, on the bottom, every week we're going to have a few different resources that we want to encourage you. If you love this stuff, or if you're like, I don't know anything about this, these resources are for you. We have uh, three uh, resources at least every week that we're going to put on there. And the first one is this kids' devotional called Indescribable by Louis Giglio. It, this is a really interesting devotional. Ariel Myers, our kids' ministry director, pointed me to it. I, I love it because not only does it have a scripture that you can go over with your kids every week, and it's good for adults too, but it also has a like, science lesson that goes along with it. So it's science and scripture, how they fit together, and it's awesome. So even adults, you guys should get this. This is really cool, 100-day devotional. You guys can do that in your quiet times with God. So I want to encourage you, and check out the rest of those resources if you're interested. There's even some short videos, you know, even if you're not a reader, okay? Check it out on YouTube or wherever the video is found. They're good stuff. Okay, and then on the front side, front side of the bulletin, hey, we usually have our community group questions in the bulletin, but we got so much stuff going on. So if you look at the very bottom, there is a link to the community group questions. And if you use that QR code right there, you can take a picture of it and go automatically to the website where it has those questions. Or you can type in that code, stapletonchurch.com slash community groups. And that takes you to the questions for the week because we want you to look at those questions so that you show up at your community group ready to discuss. Okay, it's kind of like between the service and your community group, you guys can be ready for that. So that's where those are. Okay, got that? That's where they are if anybody has questions. So week two of God and science, God and the Big Bang. In 1961, the United States was engaged in the great space race with the Soviet Union. That both nations were trying to do whatever they could to advance scientific technology and be the first ones to land on the moon. Back in 1961, it was the Russians who actually claimed the first victory in the race because Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, was the first man to ever orbit the Earth. The manned spacecraft made it out of the outer atmosphere into space and orbited the Earth. This was a major step, a major scientific achievement for mankind. And when he came back, Earth in one of the first speeches that the Soviet leader gave Khrushchev at the time, he said that Yuri Gagarev has been sent into space and he saw no God. Because for the atheistic Soviet Union, the Soviet party, they could say definitively now, science has shown us there is no God. We have been to outer space and God is not there. Why that's fascinating is because just a few years later in 1968, it was the United States who had the next victory. Because in 1968, the Apollo 8 spacecraft was the first manned spacecraft to send humans to orbit the moon. A major leap. And why I find this fascinating is because on December 24th, Christmas Eve of 1968, some of you may remember this before I was born, the astronauts on Apollo 8 sent back this message to the U.S. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 
And they went on to read all of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Fascinating, unprompted, they made their own decision that having seen the moon, having seen this, this lunar sunrise, that they were moved to read the scriptures and said, God did create the heavens and the earth. How is it then that two groups, scientific achievement, right? Very similar in what they saw there in the universe. That one nation would say, there is no God. And the other one would say, look, God has created everything. Fascinating, right? How do they get to those two different conclusions? I think that's one of the challenges that we're trying to tackle in this series, God and Science, because it seems today that God and science are at war. That there's this conflict, that if you read the Bible and you're a person of faith, you cannot trust what science says because all those scientists are out there to destroy your faith. And the scientists are saying, hey, you can't believe the Bible, you've got to throw it out and get rid of old-fashioned skeptical religion. Or we should be skeptical of religion. But is that the case? So last week, in week one of this series, and if you miss it, go to stapletonchurch.com under the media tab. We have audio and video of every message, and you can catch a live stream on Facebook. So there, there's no excuse anymore, right? No excuse. I don't care how sick you are, you can watch. Okay? If you're watching online, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. And we had a Q&A. So this is another thing we're doing in this series. Um, with Q&A, we're going to have scientists tonight... Tonight we're going to have a panel of three different scientists. We're going to see their videos today. Last week we had great scientist Ryan who was thumping the bass this morning. I don't know if you heard him today doing a great job, but Ryan did an excellent job. It was an incredible Q&A if you missed it. We have that on our 10,000 podcast stream as well as on YouTube. We have the Q&A video up um, because you guys have some questions. And throughout this series, if you do have questions, like it says here, you can text them in for our scientists tonight, okay? So text them in or come back. Because what I'm going to do, and I did it last week, I'll do it every week in this series, I'm going to give away some books. I'm going to give away a copy of this devotional, and i got another book I'm going to talk about later in this message. So you can get that book for free. You don't even have to buy it. Okay, so come back, ask questions. That's going to be great throughout this series. But in this God and Science series, what I argued last week, I kind of laid the foundation for this rest of the series, and what I argued is that God and science are not at war. They are not enemies. In fact, They are more than allies, that they mutually reinforce each other. That science drives us to say that there must be a God out there, and he's the God of the Bible. And God drives us to study science. Did you know that? That's what we talked about last week in Psalm 19, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That we are supposed to study it and learn it, because as we study the universe, we see that there's this creator behind it, and it brings him more glory the more we learn about it so they mutually reinforce each other but then we we say all of us have the question well what about the contradictions what about when it seems that science and the bible contradict what then and i said come back this week but i did tell you a solution to it because there are three possibilities when that happens when there are these apparent contradictions contradictions between god and the bible and science one of three things is happening one you are interpreting the Bible wrong. Two, you are interpreting the scientific data wrong. Because yes, that's what scientists do. They interpret the data. Or three, you're interpreting both wrong. Okay? So we need to approach these things with a lot of humility. We talked about that last week. Whether you're a faith person or a science person. We approach it with humility. And last week we talked about one of the times where science had it right and people of faith had the interpretation of the Bible wrong, didn't we? with the Galileo incident. Now it turns out historically Galileo wasn't tortured by the church, but he was put under house arrest for teaching that the earth is not the center of the universe and the sun does not revolve around the earth, but vice versa. And he was put in prison because of that. But the problem was not with his science and his teaching, it was with the interpretation of the Bible. Because the Bible, nowhere in it teaches that The earth is the center of the universe. It nowhere teaches that the sun revolves around the earth. Any more than the app that you look at in the morning says sunrise. Is that way too early now? Right? We say sunrise, but we we know it doesn't mean the sun is rising. In the same way, people were interpreting the Bible wrongly. Why? Because they were trusting what the ancient Greeks had taught. It was philosophers in the Greek tradition that had said that the earth is the center of the universe and the sun revolves around the earth. It was the Greek interpretation of the scriptures 
not what the scriptures actually say. Does that make sense? So at that point, science helped us reinterpret the Bible more accurately. And that can happen, but I teased you last week because I said this week we're going to talk about when the exact opposite happened. And in fact, today we're going to look at two incidents where the Bible had it right and science had it wrong. Interesting, right? The Bible was right the whole time. So we're going to look at that today. You ready? So we are going to start by talking about the beginning of the universe. Because, did you know that at the turn of the 20th century, most scientists taught and believed that the universe actually did not have a beginning? You might think that's strange because that's not what we believe today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In... in, Back in the 20th century, at the turn of the century, the, the leading scientists, including people like Albert Einstein, were teaching that either the universe just was. It was and is and always would be. It is static, meaning it doesn't change, that the universe is the way it is. That was one possibility that they thought. Or the second one was that, and this is confusing to me and it doesn't make sense, probably because it doesn't make sense, is that the edge of the universe somehow folded back around itself and came back to where it was, so that it was always continuously being, right? Somehow folding in on itself. And this was what most people thought on the highest scientific levels. As Albert Einstein looked at this, and he was doing a lot of his studies and trying to figure out physical laws and the equations behind them, a brilliant scientist, He was looking at this, and as he was doing some of the math from his equations, the math was showing that the universe should not even exist. didn't make sense with what he was plugging into his equations. So he created this thing that he called the cosmological constant. The cosmological constant. Because when he added that constant to his equation, all of a sudden, it made sense. Where he got that constant from? I don't know. (laughs) He just somehow put it into the equation, and it worked. The math worked. But even from the very beginning, people were starting to poke holes in this equation. That doesn't make any sense. And yet, he would say, hey, look, the earth just was and is and always will be. It is constant. It's eternal, in a sense. But then, in the early 1930s, there was a man by the name of Edwin Hubble who built an incredible telescope out in California. And from it, he was able to observe the night sky. And what they were able to determine was that the universe was way larger than they had ever imagined. Huge. At that point, basically they knew the galaxy, but no, 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 there's millions upon billions of galaxies in this universe. And it would seem that based on where things are going, that they're actually moving away from us. There's this thing called the redshift that I had five different people explain to me before I kind of understood it. So I'm not going to even try to explain it to you, okay? Because I will fail miserably. You can ask tonight, okay, at the Q&A panel. But what they were seeing is that you can tell from that that the planets, the stars are moving away from a central point. You can trace back their trajectory, do some math, and say there was one central point in the universe, and from that everything else expanded out of it. So therefore it seems that there's a beginning. But scientists at the time did not accept those conclusions. They said, no, that can't be right. There's got to be something wrong with it. And I think this is shown well by a quote from astronomer Sir Arthur Eddington when he said, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. We have a name for that today. It's called denial. This, what Edwin Hubble is observing and measuring, that can't be right. There's got to be another explanation. It was even into the 1960s before this really gained full acceptance in the scientific community, the idea of a Big Bang, a central point from which everything else kind of exploded outwards in the universe. Because in the 1960s, a a couple astronomers, uh, Arzo Penzias, and I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, and um, a second one named Robert Wilson, were looking, and as they were observing the universe, they were studying it, they were measuring... Some things, and there was a lot of noise in the universe that was being picked up on their instruments. And they were trying to figure out what is this noise, and they tried to track down everything that it could be. They even thought maybe it's pigeons that are messing up our instruments. But eventually they realized, conclusion, actually there's this radiation in the background. And once again, I'm not going to explain this well. This background radiation behind everything that is evenly dispersed throughout the universe. And this would only make sense 
if there was one central point with the Big Bang that spread this out everywhere in the universe. It's what you would expect to see if there was a Big Bang in the beginning. And these two Americans ended up winning the Nobel Prize for their work on this. And then finally in the late 60s, early 70s, then the scientific community said, okay, maybe, maybe there was a Big Bang. And that's what most of us were taught growing up, that there is. Fascinating, right? Because it seems like from all this evidence that the universe at all points back to one central point, a beginning. That the universe has a beginning. Do you know why I find that fascinating? Because I think I read something about that somewhere. I think maybe it was Genesis 1, 1, the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Saying this for centuries, if anyone cared to listen. Bereshit is the Hebrew word, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seems like all our scientific advancement is pointing back to something that was written thousands of years ago. In the beginning. Fascinating. So, why is this significant? Because this idea of a beginning actually has much deeper philosophical and logical implications to it. Because if there is a beginning to the universe, that something had to cause it to begin. See, everything we know about the entire universe, when we observe things, measure things, is that if something begins to exist, then it has a cause. Therefore, if the universe began to exist, the universe has a cause. You following my logic here? My logic here. If something begins to exist, if I go home today and on the counter there is sitting a, a cake, and I see this cake, I'm going to know that maybe Melissa made this cake. She's great at baking, and her frosting's awesome. It could be that she made it. It could be that someone else made it, or it could be that she bought it from the store and someone at the store made it, right? But it did not magically appear, did it? It did not just come into existence. I know that someone created this because it began to exist. We know this from everything. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. So here's the point I want you to draw from this. If we can jump ahead. Our first point is that if something can't come from nothing, then everything was created by someone. If something can't come from nothing, then everything came from someone. It was created by someone. This is the first point that we're going to get in our three-point message today, building upon each other. This is very logical thought from the scientific data. We see the data, there must be a beginning, and therefore, if there's a beginning, there must be someone who has created it. Now, even the greatest skeptic to ever live, David Hume, he's a very famous skeptic, he said, I never asserted such an absurd proposition that anything might arise without a cause. It's absurd even to the skeptic that something could exist without a cause. So that's why this point kind of follows from this. If there's a beginning, there must be a cause to it. Just like what we saw in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It matches what science says. If you're saying, well, Matt, wait a second. That's quite a leap to go from a cause to someone. I don't think it's much of a leap, and here's why. Here's why. Because when you look at the beginning of everything, people, people want to know, well, how did, how did that happen before that? So there's all sorts of different ideas of how something could cause it. But what you're talking about is something before time. Something outside of time, in a sense. Something outside of the universe, out of its phys- physical properties. Something like that. So something like that is eternal, right? But here's the problem with something that is eternal. If it's just something that's eternal back there, why would it ever begin? See, there must be something that has a will to push something into motion. If you look at the beginning of a whole domino chain, somebody must have knocked the first one over, right? It has to be someone who chooses to act, or else everything would just eternally be non-existent. must be something with a will, and we call that a someone. Now, what that someone is, we don't derive from this, but we do derive a few things. For example, we know that this someone is extremely powerful, If from a bang he can make the entire universe, he must have immense power. And on top of that, we we know that this someone must be extremely, extremely intelligent to create the universe that we have. And we'll get to that intelligence with our second point in just a minute. So we're saying that there is someone 
who is eternal, that has all power or tons of power and is very intelligent. Kind of sounds like the someone in the Bible, right? We'll get to that. Must be someone. And, and what's even more fascinating is that there is nothing, then there is something, right? And, and what does the Bible say if we look in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Or in another place, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. There was nothing. There was something that is invisible, non-existent. And from that, God created everything. In Latin, the, the phrase theologically is ex nihilo, from nothing, God created everything. And this is exactly what the scriptures teach us. It matches the science, doesn't it? This has led a lot of scientists today, people like Arno Penzias, who was one of the Nobel Prize winners who discovered that background radiation, for him to say, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, Genesis, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Science and scriptures, science had it wrong. They were interpreting the data wrongly. Or, or even some who are not believers, like Stephen Hawking, says many people do not like the idea of that time has a beginning, probably because it smacks of divine intervention. You're right. There were therefore a number of attempts to avoid the conclusion that there had been a Big Bang. And elsewhere, he wrote, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. You know, maybe this book does have a few things right. Maybe we can trust it. This is fascinating. Now, some people struggle with this idea still logically. They say, well, who created the creator? In fact, that was on one of our comments on social media over the last few weeks. Who created the creator? But that's the thing. Logic tells us even those ancient Greeks, logically, Aristotle knew that if there was a beginning to the universe, there must be what he called a prime mover. Someone outside of time, outside of space, the uncaused first cause. Something that was not created that could create everything else. That's what the Bible tells us about God, that he is eternal. He is that uncaused first cause outside of everything. So that question, well, who created the creator, is itself illogical. There has to be a creator Outside of everything. Think about it. When you pick up a book to read. When you pick up a book to read. Can you find the author in this book? You can find his name on the front. There might be some evidence about who the author is or what he's like. But he's not physically in the book, is he? No. Then you wouldn't have a book. It has to be someone outside of the book to create the thing, right? This is how all created things are. It must be someone outside of the thing. To create the thing. So therefore we know that in a much more complex way, that the God who created everything, that unmoved mover, the prime mover, the uncaused first cause, must be outside of the universe as we know it. He must be eternal, where everything else is within time. Am I blowing your mind? Throughout this message today, we're going to hear a few videos from our scientists, and I want to cue up the first one from one of our scientists, Doug. Doug Johnson. I'm a, I'm a geologist. I've been working in the ener energy industry for about 38 years. Um, science and our knowledge of the, the Earth, our knowledge of the universe, uh, changes with, with every new study that comes out. And it seems like with every new study, the Earth gets older, the universe gets older, the universe gets larger. And the latest studies would say uh, the universe could be as large as 200 million light years, and a light year is about 6 trillion miles, so 200 billion times 6 trillion. You know, in many ways, the studies of the, the Earth and the universe in our simple minds uh, converge to, to eternity. It's so vast, it's so large, it's so big. I was also uh, very involved in an international Bible study for many, many years, and in that, in one of the um, in one of the Bible studies, we studied the book of Genesis. And in there, we learned the creation that when, when God, when 
God's Word says that God created the earth from nothing. The, the word that's used there literally means nothing. From nothing. When you come to understand that, and then you think of science, one scientific theory is, is the Big Bang. Well, nothing sounds like the precursor to what science would say is the origin of the universe. I think in many ways, well, the Bible is, was, is not a science book. It is consistent with uh, many things that science says. So for someone who might ask me if faith and science aren't compatible, I would say I would encourage them to, to read the Bible more. There we go. If, we have, if you have questions for Doug, text them in. You can come back tonight too. At 7 p.m. we'll start the Q&A for the night service. But that's fascinating. But some of you still are like, well, how does that fit with the Bible? Because I've read the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Doesn't it talk about these six, actually seven days of creation? How do those fit together with a 14 billion year old universe? Because that's how long ago they think the Big Bang was. Well, Problem with those apparent contradictions, what are we supposed to do? Well, it's one of three things. Well, maybe the science is wrong, and it's possible. Some people are young earth creationists, and we have those people in our church. Great. You'd say, okay, maybe the science is wrong about this. Maybe we don't have it all interpreted right, which has obviously happened before. (laughs) Second thing, maybe our interpretation of the scriptures need to be adjusted. Maybe we're not understanding that word day correctly. So there's several different options here, and we as a church do not take a stance on how God created the universe. We believe, like Doug mentioned, that the Bible is not a scientific textbook to tell us how God created it, but that he did create it. The fact that he is the creator of the universe and the creator of us, that he loves us and cares about us, that is indisputable. But how exactly he did it, that's why we study science, to tell us how. So how do you fit those Genesis 1 and and a 14 billion year old universe? Well, there's lots of different ways. For example, you could say that, that maybe there's some people who interpret the Hebrew and say that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 that could have been billions of years. There, there's some people who say that the entire first chapter of Genesis is beautiful poetry and, and it's intended to show us how beautiful it was when God created the universe, but not to show us the facts of days. Or it could be that God is like a very good author. If you've read uh, The Lord of the Rings, I love The Lord of the Rings, you know that Tolkien has a ton of history within that story. He created the story, and yet there's thousands and thousands of years. entire book was written as the history to The Lord of the Rings, right? A good author does that, so if God is a good author, why can't he create something with the history? Possible. That's another way to interpret them. Or uh, the maybe most common one is what's called the day-age theory, the day-age theory, that maybe the 24-hour time period is not a 24-hour time period. Maybe a day is something different in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, I believe that there are some indications within the Scriptures themselves that lead to that. For example, the sun was not created until day four. Think about that, okay? So if the sun was not created until day four, okay, if the, the, the sun is not, you know, the earth isn't revolving around the sun. Let me make sure I get that right, yeah. The earth isn't revolving around the sun. How can there be a 24-hour time period? Okay, It's like, pfft, another time your mind is blown. Or, or, or jump all the way to chapter 2 of Genesis. In chapter 2 of Genesis, it seems to be going into greater detail about how God created human beings on day 6. And yet within that one day in chapter 2, God creates the first man, Adam, from the dust. And then he, he takes this man and he parades in front of him every living creature on the planet so he can name them. And then after Adam has done with all of that, he grows lonely. And God says, okay, we need somebody else. So he puts Adam into a deep sleep and then practices the very first surgery of all time. He takes out this piece of Adam's side and boom, creates this woman. And then Adam writes this beautiful love song for her, sings to her, they get married, the end of the chapter. In my mind, that seems to take more than 24 hours for all of that stuff to happen. But maybe you could squeeze it in, I don't know. But it might just be that a day to God, what he's using that is for us to understand, I mean, really, that we need to rest on the seventh day of the week. Okay? That's why the first six days are there. And even in other places, like in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. So there's something different about God because he is before time. Okay? However you wish to interpret and combine those together, that's okay. I'm not going to tell you which one you have to believe or think. We, had a church ha- we as a church have a wide variety of views on that, and that's good, and that's okay. 
But the point is they do not have to contradict. They don't. Science, faith don't. Science, what we learned in the 14 billion years, may fit very easily into Genesis chapter 1. So that's the first time that we look at this and say, hey, it seems like the Bible had it right, that there is a creator, there is a beginning. We got that point right. Chalk one up for, for the Bible, right? Well, there's a second time that the Bible had it right, and science couldn't get it right either. They got it wrong. And that leads us, that first argument is called the cosmological argument, and the six, second one is called the fine-tuning argument. Because if you look at the universe, it seems very fine-tuned. And I think this is interesting because back in 1962, there was a very famous cover of Time magazine which asked, is God dead? Very bold proclamation for a magazine that's gone bankrupt like eight times. Is God dead? Why it's fascinating is because that same year, that same year, the great uh, cosmologist Carl Sagan came out and declared, we know definitively that there is life elsewhere in the universe. And he said, you know why? Because there are only two things that we need for a planet in order for it to produce life. There needs to be a star that's the right size. It can't be too big. It can't be too small. And then you need a planet the right distance from that star. It's like the Goldilocks planet. Okay, if it's too far away, it's too cold. If it's too close, it's too hot. It has to be just right. Okay? The Goldilocks planet. So he, he said at the time that, well, hey, if there's... I, I, I'm going to get this number wrong, so I'm going to look it up. If there are, therefore, one octillion planets in the universe, that's one with 24 zeros, there would therefore logically be a septillion planets that could have life. That's one with 21 zeros. That's a lot of planets, therefore a lot of aliens. Okay? But guess what? SETI and our best scientists still haven't found any. Now, I'm not saying anything about the existence of extraterrestrial life. That's another topic for another day. But even Carl Sagan, just a few years later, would say, hey, it's not actually just two different variables. There's more like 50. And then a few years later, actually, there's more like 100. And today it's over 200 variables. For example, there has to be a gas giant planet like Jupiter that can take all the asteroids away from it so it doesn't just get barraged by you know, these comets flying through the universe. Okay? There has to be all these things right for there to be a planet that could contain life. So now, statistically, it seems improbable that there is even one planet that has life. And yet, here we are. Here we are. We should not exist. We do. And then, even more so, it turns out that the universe shouldn't even exist. Because they look at this. Physicists now can, can take a look at it, and there's a lot of different variables when it comes to the emergence of the universe, some 200 as well. Things like the uh, force of gravity or electromagnetism or the weak or strong nuclear forces, just to name four. If those are all off by just one fraction of a thousandth of a decimal point, the universe would not exist at all. Stephen Hawking wrote, If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million the universe would have collapsed before it ever reached its present size. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. And then later he said, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think clearly there are religious implications whenever you start to discuss the origins of the universe. Interesting, right? Interesting. Religious implications of this. I agree. <laughs> I agree, even though he comes to a different conclusion, which we'll get to in just a minute. So how is this, this Goldilocks universe that we exist at all, that there's life on this planet, let alone intelligent life, is so astronomically small that it seems like it's been tinkered with, finely tuned. John Polkinghorn, in another book I'm going to give away tonight, called Quarks, Chaos, and Christianity, a physicist turned pastor. Fascinating, right? Recommend this book. He looked at it and he said, hey, if, if you were given a universe-creating machine and it had all these 200-plus knobs on it and you had to dial every knob in just right in order to create a universe with life, he, he said, think about that, how immensely precise you'd have to get with all these, knowing these variables, in order for there to be life. 
There has to be someone who is finally tuning it. Finally tuning it down, dialing it down. There has to be a designer who designed it all and knows a lot. Very intelligent. And that's why it leads us to our second point. If there is a design, there is a designer. If there is a design which we seem to observe from the physical properties of the universe and the fact that there's life on this planet, therefore there is a designer. It's not just, it could have been any universe, it could have been the septillion planets. No, 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 there's just one. Or so we think. Talk about aliens next. We're not going to talk about aliens next week, but maybe at the Q&A tonight we can talk about it. If there is a design, which it seems like with everything we see, there is a designer. And I think that's a pretty logical conclusion. Just like William Paley, he's a famous uh, apologist, and he said, if you were walking along a beach and you came across a piece of wood, you would think, well, maybe this broke off a tree. But if you came across a pocket watch, you would not say, wow, what a natural occurrence this pocket watch is, right? Even a pocket watch that doesn't even have any digital things. It just has gears winding and it's, it's wound up and there's, someone had to create it, right? It's the most logical inference from the design of this watch. If there is a design, there is a designer. If there is a design, there is a designer. This has even led some, some people like Paul Davies, the physicist, to say the appearance of design is overwhelming. Or others like Fred Hoyle, who coined the term the Big Bang. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Trying to make a dramatic point there. My microphone. So what are the alternatives? There's a couple that people have tried to postulate. One is that the universe just is. It just is. It's just a random chance thing that we happen to be this universe. It just is. But if you are ever in a scientific class and they ask you, why is this the way that it is, and you say it just is, you're going to fail. It's not an intellectual thing. You're just stopping and saying, I'm not going to study anymore. It just is. That's pretty intellectually lazy in my opinion. We've got to know, no, no, that's not good enough. It just is. Or the second option, which is the most popular one today, is the multiverse. Heard of this? Maybe from Spider-Man? Okay. The multiverse. That there isn't just one universe. There are hundreds and thousands, maybe billions and trillions of possible universes that exist. And we just happen to be in the one that has all those dials dialed in to be finely tuned. Okay. It certainly is possible. It certainly is possible that there's this great multiverse. But here's the thing about the multiverse. You can't see it, you can't measure it, you can't study it, you can't experiment with it. It's complete speculation. It's what we call science fiction. It's great science fiction though, isn't it? It really is. It's fascinating and it could be true, but is it the best explanation? Sometimes we have to do this when it comes to reason. It's like it could be a lot of different things, but what's the best explanation? It's possible that out from the rock formed this pocket watch it's probably not the best explanation. In fact, when you put it with the first argument and the few that we're going to look at over the next few weeks and the evidence even from our own life and the fact that billions of people on the earth today and throughout history have all said there's probably a creator God, that maybe it leans us towards the fact that there is a designer. I'm pushed in that direction. So is Megan, our next scientist. My name is Megan Cornelison and I'm a geologist. And I decided to get into that because I loved learning about the earth around me and Indiana Jones. How does my faith uh, impact my career? I study ancient environments and rocks, and um, every piece of rock to me, or any geologist, is a piece of history, even if it's a boulder or a piece of sand. So the joy that I get from being a geologist and being a Christian is that I'm just learning more and more about God's creation from millions of years ago to now. Rereading Genesis 1 after becoming a geologist was really eye-opening to me and in a way comforting because um, the description given of creation in the Bible paralleled some of the things I learned about earth systems 
evolution, which, you know, started with the atmosphere and rain falling from the sky and creating the oceans and land. That's in Genesis 1. Life started in the oceans and then with plant life and land animals. That's in Genesis 1, too. So that was something that really spoke to my heart. We're not on the wrong track of figuring out his creation. I would say to someone who questions if uh, faith and science can be compatible is that we all have minds to explore and learn about this world. And it's not very different if you're coming from a basis of believing that God set everything in motion or cosmic dust and energy set everything in motion. And it takes more faith to believe that we came from nothing than to believe that we came from a design. If you have questions for Megan, text them in. We'll come back tonight at 7. But it seems the best possible explanation of all of this is what we've talked about, that there is a God, that there is someone, that there is a designer behind all of it. Okay, are there other possibilities? Yes. But what's the most logical? What's the most reasonable? So this is why I want to give you our third point, the big idea today, is that if you pursue science to its logical end, there is a God. There is a God. If you pursue science with logic, you need both of them. You need reason and you need science and you see it and you put it together and you pursue it and keep pursuing it, not just saying, oh, this answer is good and we can move on. No, no, no. You keep pursuing it logically. There is a God. There is a God behind all of it. So I want to challenge you today, especially those of you who are unbelievers or agnostics. You say, "Ah, can we know? Yes, I believe we can with great confidence. Great confidence. Now, if you're wondering, even from Megan's video, well, how does evolution fit in with this? Come back next week. That's next week's message. Come back next week. What I think is so fascinating is the more we read of the scriptures and, and we see that in these two instances, the Bible had it right, even though scientists had it wrong for so long. The Bible had it right the whole time. And I think Robert Jastrow, the um, scientist, astronomer who worked for NASA, said it well. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. For centuries. If there's a beginning, there had to be a creator behind it. If there is a design, there has to be a designer. If you pursue science with logic, there is a God. But here's the thing. That is still not enough. Because if there's a God of the universe, and he cares about us and at all, then we should want to get to know him. And we should want to do what he says. And we should know that this God that is spoken about so accurately in the scriptures is a God who cared about us so much, loved us so much, that he sent his own son to come down and represent him to us. The same Jesus who was there since the creation of the world, who himself part of the triune God and helped create the universe as we know it. We read that as God spoke and everything came into being, that word that God spoke was Jesus himself. And this Jesus came down to human to, to, came down to the earth to live among us, a human being, to show us that this God cares about us. He loves us, and though we have sinned against him, he is willing to die on the cross to pay for our sin so that we could have a restored relationship with the same God who created everything. So if you're here today and you're saying, I think maybe there is a God, well, it's time to take the next step to put your faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. And I'm going to be in the back. We have some of our prayer team that we're going to be on the sides. I want to talk with you. I want to pray with you. I want to challenge you to take that step of faith. It just takes a simple prayer to say, I do believe. I do believe. And maybe it's time for some of you to do that. And I think our last video is going to show that very well. Let's watch this video from Steph's Daily. I am working in aerospace engineering, and as the joke goes, it is rocket science, uh, but I actually started out with a degree in astrophysics. I did not become a Christian until later, and so at the time that I was studying, I had a purely naturalistic worldview, and I had some assumptions about people of faith that I later learned were really not fair or accurate. 
I thought, I guess, that thinking people, educated people, don't fall for that stuff. Um, and so what I found, though, in my journey of becoming a Christian myself is, um, that, again, that that really was not fair um, or accurate. I thought that Christianity was a very naive and almost arrogant worldview, this idea that here we are, this little tiny speck of dust in this vast universe, and there's a God out there who cares about every detail of, of our lives and is intimately involved. I thought, how arrogant is that? We're, we're nothing. Um, but again, as I became a Christian um, along that journey, I realized that I was thinking about that exactly wrong. I needed a perspective shift. Um, you know how if somebody draws maybe a, a cube or a cylinder on a blackboard, you can be looking at it and it looks like it's kind of going this way into the board, but then your brain can do a, a shift. Nothing's changed except the way you're looking at it, and suddenly it looks like it's coming out of the board that way. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but that was kind of an epiphany for me about that idea. The fact that, that we're tiny little specks of dust is the point, not because of what it says about us, but because of what it says about God, that this same God who is so creative and vast and powerful and created this amazing universe, he's also loving and personal and forgiving, you know, that he would condescend to create us, um, not only that, but to, to invite us into an intimate relationship with him. So come to know Christ. Get into relationship with him as your Savior, as your Lord, and then follow him. Let him teach you. Let him guide you. Bring these questions that you may have to him. And it's actually a beautiful adventure. It's an adventure of the intellect, of the heart, um, that begins in relationship with, with Jesus. Could everybody just close your eyes right now, bow your heads. Lord God, we have seen scientific evidence, arguments, and, and your word saying that there is a creator of the universe. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Lord. And it seems logical, it seems reasonable, Lord God. And I know there are some here that need that as a foundation for their faith. And I pray that you bolster them today. That they would leave here convinced in their mind, knowing that there is a God. But Lord God, for the people in here who, who have never taken that step of faith to believe in Jesus, I pray that you'd stir in their hearts right now. And with everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed, if you are here and you're ready to take a step of faith and you're saying, I do think that that Jesus represents the God of the universe and I want faith in Him, I want a relationship with Him. If that's you, would you please just raise your hand right now? You say, I want to believe in this Jesus. Would you please raise your hand? Awesome. Awesome. Praise God. What I'm going to do right now is just give you an opportunity to respond in faith to respond in faith. So I'm going to give you this simple prayer. If you've already said this prayer, would you just join with the people who are saying this prayer for the first time to, to just help bolster them? But with everybody's eyes closed, would you repeat this prayer after me? Lord God, I believe that you created everything. I admit I'm a sinner. I want a relationship with you. Would you forgive me of my sins? I accept the gift of forgiveness. And, G and I declare that Jesus is Lord. God, help me to follow you and serve you all the days of my life. Okay, with everybody's eyes closed, if you said that prayer for the first time, congratulations. Congratulations. Can we give them a round of applause? I'm going to be in the back. I'm here to pray for you, encourage you. I have a special bag of some gifts and a book that I want to give to you if you made that decision for the first time. And now would everybody just please stand up as we worship this God of the universe.